Well, Jeff, today we are talking to Dr. Karen Reeder, who is a professor of New Testament, which in the academic world is called biblical studies. So why are we talking about biblical studies on a theology podcast? Biblical studies, theological studies, kind of different on the same team for sure. But let me tell you a story. When I was doing my internship after my Master of Divinity, I ended up working at a church where I was leading a Bible study out of the Gospel of Mark. And university staff and students will recognize our approach to studying the Gospel of Mark involves looking at the literary structure. There are repeated themes, repeated words that give the story in Mark's Gospel a very distinct structure that some would say has an X shape or a Greek letter chi or key, chiasm, an X shape to it. Now, when I was trying to explain this to some of the folks at the church, one person got frustrated and piped up and said, I don't believe in all of this academic mumbo jumbo. And that shut the conversation down pretty hard. I was pretty discouraged because I've, I've used these literary studies techniques with lots and lots of students, but they didn't work for someone who was deeply skeptical of what he thought was quote-unquote academic. So biblical studies is a whole set of tools and disciplines that approaches the sacred text, the holy scripture that we confess is the word of God. And these techniques that we use help us to uncover what we build our theology from. So who we understand Jesus to be as we look at the text has everything to do with the ways that we approach it, the tools that we use, the ways that we read. That's what we mean by biblical studies, and it's hugely important for our theology. It's the raw data that we use to build. That's right, and there's, there's lots of different approaches, and some people might say some are more helpful than others, but the sort of academic bifurcation of the two has been a, a challenge in the theological world. But today, we're going to be talking to Karen Reeder about how she views biblical studies and why that's been important to her own personal and professional life, and uh, particularly some of the ways in which we could read the Bible poorly. And she talks about particularly our cultural assumptions and biases that we bring to the text as it pertains to female characters. Um, she has a new book that's out from InterVarsity Press called The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Church 2. Great. I'm excited for that conversation. Emily, you mentioned cultural biases as we approach the text. I know that for some of our listeners, this is going to be a tough one because we don't believe that we're biased in any way. So certainly, we don't have malintent as we approach the text. What do you mean by cultural biases? And how does that factor into biblical studies? Yeah, well, there are all kinds of cultural biases that we could have. For example, what we think normal relationships might be or normal economic systems, those values that we have that are just implicit in our culture, we can project those values, say like efficiency or productivity. You know, there's all sorts of things that we could read into the text and read into the stories. And in this case, Karen is talking about our views of women and particularly the ways that sexual sin has been read onto a lot of female characters where there's actually no 
proof of that. There's, there's no real evidence for that. And that affects how we read the story because we've put the woman in a position of sexual center, which allows us to sort of distance ourselves from her and the actual significance of her as a character and her role that the role really that Jesus gives to say the woman at the well and, or Mary Magdalene, for example. And if we have those women as role models, then we have a lot different conversation about the role of women in the church and the kinds of discipleship that we can envision. What I hear you saying is if we insert something that is not in the text and it leads us to relate to these Bible characters in deficient or different ways, ways that weren't intended for us, that's a huge loss. I can imagine nothing more important than biblical fidelity and faithfulness as we read the text. So I'm really excited for this conversation. My name is Karen Reeder. I am a professor of New Testament at Westmont College. What do you study? So my work has, it's diverse. (laughs) I've covered a lot of different things over my years as a researcher, but it always circles around issues of gender, um, violence, and the family household, and how those three things come together in surprising and difficult and problematic ways. And then what do we do with that as biblical researchers or within the church? And how do you tend to describe that simply to people who you might encounter at a dinner party or on an airplane? So I like to read a lot of mystery novels. (laughs) It's my fun thing to do with my time off, Um, sometimes with my time that's not off as well. But I like to think of myself, therefore, as a literary detective. I'm investigating all of the layers that lay over and behind and inside a text. So literary elements, historical elements, the political and social context, the cultural backgrounds, and peeling back the layers of what a text is saying on the surface, and then what is it actually doing within its own cultural context. We bring a lot of our own assumptions to texts, of course, and so part of that work as a detective is also peeling back my assumptions and being really humble in um, trying to set aside my own perspectives and coming to a text. Can you give me an example? So I think, you know, as a scholar, I'm Mm -hmm. sure you've seen this happen in the pews, at the kitchen table. Can you think of one example of an assumption that humility would ask us to peel back? So my most recent work is about the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4. And if you talk to most people in the church, I think you'd hear, oh, she was a sinner because she committed adultery and she was sinning against her husbands and she's living in sin with her boyfriend. I mean, the text is really clear about that, right? Well, let's peel back some of the assumptions that might be going into that. <laughs> so if I'm being humble and admitting that I don't know everything about women's lives in the ancient world. I don't know everything about marriage in the ancient world. So I need to set aside my own assumptions about what a marriage looks like, how women enter into marriage, what role they might take with their own marriages, and think more seriously and clearly about what was the Samaritan woman's life like to be married five times? How many times was she widowed? Did her father make her get divorced so that he could marry her off to someone who was more advantageous connection for their family? 
What are the situations that a woman might have been in that she would be with a in a household relationship with a man who is not her formal husband? There are actually a lot of reasons for that in the first century. So if I'm setting aside all of my assumptions about marriage as a relationship with your best friend and how that very modern image of marriage has colored the way we approach the biblical text. We have to see the biblical text, the people in the biblical text for who they actually are. So if we made this shift, because it seems like a pretty big one, what would the implication be for, you know, the kind of churches that our listeners might go to? The second part to that question is we're here at AARSBL. And this is an academic conference where people talk about academic ideas like the ones that you're you know, offering to us. What are we doing here? And how does it touch the ground? My work on the Samaritan woman's story was motivated first by the fact that I think it's a fantastic story that we've misunderstood <laughs> because we focus so much on her marital history to the exclusion of everything else she does in her story. But also seeing the implications of that kind of reading for the lives of our churches. So here's a place where I actually see the academic work and the life of the church, the life of faith, intersecting really explicitly. If you look at the history of how the Samaritan woman has been interpreted in the church, it's just been a consistent message of she's a prostitute, she's an adulterer, and therefore her story teaches us about women's sexual sin. And therefore, (laughs) women should be marginalized, minimized, and silenced in the church. And that's what's happened to the Samaritan woman. But what if we set aside that issue and we realize that she is speaking to Jesus in the longest conversation in the Gospel of John? She goes to her community and witnesses to them and they listen to her. They don't treat her as some sort of social outcast, but they they believe because of her word as much as because of Jesus' word. And suddenly we have a woman who is a leader and a preacher and someone who we could used as a model for discipleship for men and women within the church. I think the way that her story has been interpreted has been, and the stories of many women in the Bible, has been really damaging for women in our Christian communities. And if we go back to the text, set aside our assumptions about what's going on there, and really look at these women's stories again, maybe we'll find different models. Not maybe, we will find different models. Is there maybe another story you can give us an example of? The Samaritan woman is often in sermons compared with the woman who anoints Jesus' feet in Luke 7, who is described as a sinner. And immediately interpreters say, she's a prostitute. That's the only sin women can commit, of course. (laughs) Um, Well, maybe not. (laughs) In fact, the Gospel of Luke presents many people as sinners, and they sin in a variety of ways that is not always related to sexuality. So what if we don't think of this woman as a prostitute? I think that it's just such an extreme jump to make to immediately say she's a woman, she's a sinner, she's a prostitute. What if we see her as sort of more normative, just one of us, and see her story in a different lens? I think we hear a different message then from her story and the story gets used in a different way that doesn't simply reductively sexualize women and make their stories only important with relation to sexuality. So it strikes me that as I listen to you asking questions Mm -hmm. about how we, the the assumptions that we bring to the text, I'm not seeing any magic tricks or anything up your sleeve. So (laughs) maybe could you talk to us about like 
what does it mean to be an academic reader of the text? And why does it feel like there's a distance between being an academic reader of the text and a lay reader of the text? So I think that academics, including myself in this, <laughs> we often get very entranced with issues that seem really inconsequential <laughs> to most people with the placement of a comma, <laughs> with the way that a particular verb is conjugated, with a particular piece of historical background that we think this explains everything. And those issues are often really opaque <laughs> to the average reader of the text. And while those issues often bring new insights, I think academics are maybe not always the best at clearly explaining <laughs> why these things matter so much and how they might affect the way we interpret a text or indeed live out our faith in the world. So I think that that is a real consistent historical failing of academia that we get lost in our own minds <laughs> and, and we don't always make that connection back to the really practical significance of these issues. I, I really appreciate that humility and, and maybe I could flip the coin because mm. as a former clergy person, I feel like my clergy community can sometimes not exhibit a reciprocal humility mm. and in, instead we can say things like, we don't really need academic readings of the text because what we really need are quote-unquote faithful readings as if those are, are pitted against each other. What would you say to um, a student in your classroom or a clergy person who talks to you about that distance? I think when I started reading the Bible way back when, my mother used to hand me a Bible when I was bored in church and <laughs> let me read different stories from it. And I enjoyed them as stories and I'm sure that I learned something from them. But I would say over 15 years of being a professor of biblical studies, when I approach the text from an academic perspective, it consistently challenges and shapes my faith in a new way. Students often ask me about this disconnect that they feel that I used to be able to read the Bible devotionally, but now you've taught me all of this stuff and I don't know what to do anymore. And for me, I think... Actually, all of this stuff, all of this academic work I do deepens my devotional life. And even though I've complicated the text, and even though I've added on all of this complexity, all of that complexity makes me appreciate what the biblical authors are doing and how the Bible is representing God's work in the world. Adding those layers, it's often very challenging because suddenly I'm seeing things, asking questions that I would not have asked as a little kid just starting to read my Bible or even as sort of an early PhD student working through some of these, these issues for the first time. But I appreciate how much more I can understand of the kingdom of God in the world, just how much that should challenge us. <laughs> Yeah, I think you brought up a couple of themes of, that we've seen throughout some of the other episodes we've recorded of, of translation, of being able to learn how to translate some of the things that we learn academically to people who don't have that same sort of level of expertise, why they matter, how we can communicate that publicly. And also, Jeff, as you were mentioning, things not being pitted against each other, but being able to learn from each other why things matter and how faith informs our academic life and how our academic studies can, can actually enrich our faith and enrich our relationship with that. 
I have a curveball for you. Oh, excellent. <laughs> How much time do you have? Yeah. As an academic, mm-hmm. what do you wish people asked you that no one really asks you, especially when we think mm-hmm. of like church folk or ministry mm-hmm. folk? What do you wish they would ask you? One that I find most enriching to talk about with students, for instance, that I really wish we talked about more in the church is the metaphor of slavery in the New Testament and the realities of slavery. So it's not just a metaphor, but also the realities of what slaves, enslaved people, um, what their life experience was in the first century and how that informs the way we read about enslaved people in the biblical stories, but also the way that Jesus and Paul and Peter use that metaphor of enslavement to refer to church relationships. I think that that's actually, it's a deeply challenging metaphor within the Roman world um, because slaves were the rock bottom of society. They were dishonored and dehumanized in so many ways. And that's the metaphor that you pick to say, if you want to be the leader, become the slave of all. That Jesus uses that metaphor of the disciples. Paul uses that metaphor of Jesus. (laughs) What is that doing within the Roman world? And how would that challenge some of the areas of, or the concerns of status in Roman society? And how might that relate then to people who were enslaved in early Christian churches? What would they have been hearing in that? Yeah, I think one of the exciting areas of biblical studies that's been burgeoning over the past few years is bringing different perspectives to bear on the text, right? So different cultural, ethnic, racial perspectives. And I think that enslavement in the biblical text is really enriched by those conversations and could be really enriching for some of the issues the church is struggling with these days. I don't want to be remiss here. Are you working on any upcoming publications? That yes. Yeah. Love so. to hear about what you're working. On. So, as you may have gathered, I've been working on the Samaritan woman story, <laughs> and um, so I have a book coming out in February 2022 on. Um, it's entitled The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Church 2. So it's looking at the history of interpretation of John 4 against the context of the sexual exploitation of women in Christian communities, historically, but particularly in response to the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement. And here at SBL, I presented a paper on some of the women interpreters of John 4 from the early Reformation period through the early 20th century who did not see the woman as a sexual sinner, but rather as a leader and a teacher who should authorize and empower women to speak in Christian communities. Oh, if we'd listened to them all along, yeah. <laughs> right? would we be in a different place now? Can you drop a name of one of those women interpreters? Because mm-hmm. I remember reading John Christopher's mm-hmm. commentary mm-hmm. and then showing it to a veteran pastor who mm-hmm. said, oh yeah, I think uh, we'll all unmask for our naive interpretations in generations to come. Mm-hmm. So in other words, he didn't like this. Can you drop some names? One of my favorites, in fact, is Virginia Broughton. She was a black woman in post-Civil War Tennessee who worked as a missionary in the black community. And she uses the Samaritan woman as an example of women's leadership, sort of a rallying cry to the women of her community. You should be preaching the gospel like this. Very few biblical scholars have dealt with her work at all. So she's sort of a new voice in the field of biblical studies. She's funny. She says at one point, she records a conversation with her husband who was saying to her, you know, when are you going to give up all of this traveling and missionary work and just be my wife? And she said, oh, you're going to have to take that up with God because God is the one who's called me to this work. 
So I really appreciate her voice and I hope that more scholars will become aware of her work. You've been listening to Theology And, a podcast of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Thanks so much for listening. You can check us out on social media. And visit us on the web at theologyandpodcast.com. 